Breitbart News Daily. Thanks for being here. We talked with Sean Spicer in the show today. He was great. He's got a new show on The First TV, which is where I have a show as well. And I hope you can join us over there. It's on uh, His new show is 6 p.m. Eastern on The First TV. And you can watch The First TV on Pluto, Roku, where it streams everywhere, and DirecTV Channel 347 as well. DirecTV Channel 347. The Sean Spicer Show starts on Monday. He was great, giving us some really good insight into... Uh, well, the charges, I learned a couple things, actually, about the Georgia charges. Like, it's not pardonable. That's a big one. There's a minimum sentence that the judge can't do much about, and it can't. the president and the governor can't pardon. So that one's, that's trouble right there. And it's the easiest charge to be sentenced to. So that's very bad. Um, so we talked about that uh, with Sean at 8, and then Alex Marlowe wrapped up the show as well. But uh, the interview we're going to do in a minute is with Peter Schweizer about the alias that Joe Biden had, this alias email that he had, that he was forwarding emails to and connecting to Hunter. That's definitely a next step. We'll do that in a minute. But first, uh, we spent, geez, I think this first segment's 45 minutes, <laughs> went a little long, about moral formation in America and how that made us the greatest country in the world. If you want to be the greatest country in the world again, which I do, or, or if you want to keep, stay, remain the greatest country in the world, or be as great as we once were, well, we got to do the things that made us the greatest country in the world. And that is moral formation. We break it down here. chat about this for a while <laughs> if you don't mind let's all hang out on this friday morning so i like david brooks i don't agree with him on politics but he's a he's the new york times conservative writer but i really appreciate the life stuff that he is trying to figure out he's trying to find the truth trying to understand things and i appreciate the effort i want to encourage it it's easy to be a flamethrower like Many others are, even at the New York Times. But it's, it's much more difficult to be thoughtful. And I like David Brooks's most recent book, Second Mountain. So his life fell apart. His wife left him, estranged to his kids. He was a workaholic, and he just hit rock bottom. And he then realized out of that what's actually important in life. And I prefer to listen to people like that, people who have gained something, then lost it, and are trying to come back again. I respect that very much. It's, that, it's sort of the line from the Rudyard Kipling poem. Uh, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it all on one turn of pitch and toss and lose, then start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. It's such a good line. Never breathe a word about your loss. Here's Deborah Brooks like, oh, I lost it all. All right, well... Let's try to pick up and try go again. Right? Start, start over, but let me do it the right way this time. I appreciate that. Anyway, he wrote an article called How America Got Mean. He says over the last eight years, he's been asking two main questions. First, why has, American, why has America or why have Americans become so sad? What an interesting question. Rates of depression are up. Deaths of despair, drugs, alcohol, and suicide. 
the percentage of people who say they don't have close friends has increased fourfold in the last 30 years. The share of Americans, 25 to 54, who are not married or living with a romantic partner has gone up 38% in just the last three years. Uh, excuse me, has gone up to 38% from 29% in 1990. So it was 29%, now it's 38%. A record high, 25% of 40-year-olds have never been married. More than half of all Americans say that no one knows them well. The number of high school students who say they have persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in 2009, not long ago, was 26%. That, that's wild. 26%. And now it's 44 high schoolers who have a persistent feeling of sadness and hopelessness. Oh, gee, that, I don't know which one of those stats is, is most striking or concerning, but there's something there. Why have Americans become so sad? That's the first question. Second question is, why have Americans become so mean? said he was talking to someone who owns a restaurant who told him he has to eject a customer once a week because he's rude or cruel. Or they, a man or a woman. They're, they're being rude or cruel once a week. He said he's never had to do that his entire life until recently. He was talking to a head nurse at a hospital who was telling him about nurses leaving the profession because patients have become abusive. And I've heard that from many nurses. I've heard many nurses who still love their job somehow, who just talk about the abuse they get working in the hospital. Patients have, are just cruel to them. Teachers, of course, uh, with their students, kids acting horribly. Everyone is just mean. Now, how about this? With the meanness also becomes uh, people are, are not as generous. In the year 2000, two-thirds of Americans gave to charity. Today, less than half. These are huge shifts in 20 or 30 years. America, one, one of the things we used to pride ourselves is what a generous nation we are when it comes to giving to charity. Now it's less than half of Americans do any. So he, he lays out a, a strong case to the state of things, and it's not great. But then the why is what I care about, and this is where David Brooke excels. So we've got a couple of explainers here. and He's four, and I like all of these. His point is that none of these hit the mark exactly right. So he's got a fifth option. But I think each of these play a role. So why are Americans so mean? That's what we're focusing on. Why are Americans so mean? Now, oh, let's just say this too. Um, there are cultural differences here too. I read this analysis the other day, a couple weeks ago. There's a difference between nice and kind. Nice and kind. And the argument is that New Yorkers are not nice, but they're kind. And people on the West Coast of California, LA, they're kind, but not nice. Yeah, yeah. So a New Yorker is a New Yorker is not nice, but they're kind. So if you have a flat tire, they'll be like, hey, idiot. What are you doing? You got a flat tire. Come on, give me the jack. Let's go. Let's fix it here. Come on. So they're not nice, but they're kind. They'll help. <laughs> someone in Los Angeles, they're nice, but not kind. Oh, uh, excuse me. Uh, it seems you have a flat tire there. Yep, you should go ahead and fix that. See you later. Have a good day. 
So they're, they're nice about it, but they're not kind. They won't actually help you. <laughs> That's pretty good. But so there's different cultural analysis, but, but this is beyond that. This is different than just different cultures or maybe a little nicer than you know, New Yorkers are. This is beyond that. This is just people are not, people are just mean. More so than in the past. So a couple of reasons why. First, technology. Social media driving us crazy. I don't think we need to analyze that much more. I think we see it. Broke my heart. Uh, a couple months ago, I was at an ice cream parlor with the family, and there was a grandmother there with, oh, I can't even, I can't even say it. There was a grandmother there sitting at the table with her, oh, I, it's seared in my memory, with her grandson, and the grandson was playing a game on his phone, and grandma was just saying, oh, it was just horrific. I, I, it breaks my heart. We have, phones have just changed us. And social media turned us into zombies and cruel people. I saw a, a video compilation yesterday. Maybe you're seeing it on TikTok. It's a TikTok trend where moms will set up the phone, set up the phone in front of them in the kitchen with their little daughters and they're cracking eggs. And the little girl's so excited. Oh, we're making scrambled eggs with mommy. And the mom will violate the loving trust of their three-year-old and crack the egg on the kid's forehead instead of on the bowl. And the kid is at first shocked, like, what did mommy just do to me? And then cries and runs away. And the mom looks at the camera and cracks up. And so, like, recorded the whole thing. I don't know what they expected the reaction to be. Recorded and then posted it online for views. Of, the, of, of them doing something to their kid that makes the kid cry. Like mom's being a bully. Now, some people do it and the kid's a little older and maybe the kid's like 12 and it's a little more playful and the, the kid gets it and it's more fun and they're just joking around. Like like if you're making uh, something with flour and you put the flour on the kid's... Like there's a, there's a way to make it playful and fun, but you don't do it with your two-year-old and then have the kid run away crying because they just wanted to make scrambled eggs with mommy... And, and then you post it. Social media, and that, that's just the example I saw yesterday. Social media changes how we behave. And I, I, I don't know how it's changed us for the better at all. I don't know how social media has changed us for the better. Someone give me it. Anyway, so you have that. Second, you have the uh, sociology story. So we've stopped participating in community organizations and we're more isolated than ever before. That's why we're meaner. We're more isolated. Uh, 100% true. We used to build, if you go into older neighborhoods, all the houses have big front yards. So the idea was you play in the front yard with your family and you're, and everyone does. So you're all out. Hey, how you doing, Charlie? Everyone's out in the front yard. So everyone's facing out into the community. And then we started building backyards where you don't, you don't see your neighbors. And then we started building living rooms facing the wall where we would put the TV. They would design like architecture, house architecture would design houses, design living rooms to face a wall with the TV on it. And now we have a TV in every room or a screen in every room or in your pocket. So family members are in their own rooms even now. At least with the TV on the wall, you were all sitting next to each other. Now you're not even in the same uh, room. So it's all way more isolating. So that's in the home. And then we used to have social clubs uh, that men and women went to. Like, uh, Fred Flintstone was in the loyal order of the water buffaloes. So we're just less connected than ever before and you're going to get meaner. Third story is the demographic story. David Brooks says, America, long a white-dominated nation, is becoming a much more diverse country, a change that has millions of white Americans in a panic. Don't agree with that. 
Don't agree with that one. It's not that white America is in a panic. It's just that we're experimenting here in America with a multi-ethnic country. And we are told that diversity is our strength. But no one ever explains why exactly. Japan doesn't think diversity is their strength. China doesn't think diversity is their Denmark doesn't think diversity is their strength. Kenya doesn't think diversity is their strength. So there's just this assumption that diversity is America's strength. But I, I don't know. I think you got to prove that. You can't just make that claim and everyone's like, oh, yeah, okay. No, you got to, if you make that claim, you got to say why. But the anxiety that comes from that isn't because white people are upset about it. It's just because maybe diversity isn't a strength. I don't know that, but it's not, it's not all white people are so anxious and mean now. Uh, that's, that's the one I disagree with. But the economy story, high levels of economic inequality and security have left people afraid, alienated, and pessimistic. Uh, yeah, enter Rich Men North of Richmond. The more I hear that song, the more I like it. Have you seen the video compilation someone made? Oh, it's great. So there's a thing on YouTube that I will never understand where people will record themselves reacting to them watching something. I don't, I don't get these. So they'll, and they get millions of views. <laughs> so, so they'll watch something for the first time and then record themselves watching it and then post it. And people watch this guy's reaction to a thing. I don't, I don't get it, but it is a thing. So someone made a compilation of all kinds of people watching this music video, Rich Men North of Richmond. Uh, so white and black, young, old, country, ghetto, rich, poor, all reacting to this video and all loving it. So that was a pretty fun compilation here. So this chord, this song struck a chord. And if not the song and the words, then the passion behind it, it was authentic and that's for sure. So you have the economic aspect. People just aren't doing as well economically and therefore, I don't know what that means, either more high strung and just whatever. In the end, just more mean about it. So I like all these, I think for the most, like technology has changed us. We're more isolated diversity, demographic, and economic things. I think they've all contributed to people being sad and mean. But David Brooks says he doesn't love, uh, they don't all tell the story, the full story. So here's his fuller explanation. Here's what I want to chat about for the rest of the segment. He says, the most important story about why Americans have become sad and alienated and rude, I believe, is also the simplest. We inhibit a society in which people are no longer trained, trained, that's the key word, in how to treat others with kindness and consideration. When I first became a, a parent, we were told by our parenting mentors, you have to train your kids. That's the word they use. Like, I only hear the word train when it comes to like puppies. No, you have to train your children. To show them what to do. Otherwise, there's no chance they'll do it. He says, our society has become one in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. The story I'm going to tell is about morals. In a healthy society, a web of institutions, families, schools, religious groups, community organizations, and workplaces helps form people into the kind and responsible citizens, the sort of people who show up for one another. We live in a society that's terrible at moral formation. No question. So there's three aspects of moral formation. First, helping people learn to restrain their selfishness. It's what moral is what society used to do. Society used to help people learn to restrain 
their selfishness. This is called parenting. <laughs> Every kid says, I want that. That's mine. He's playing with it. Give it to me now all day long. And when parents give and give and give to their kids, the kids think they're the center of the world and then they grow up and they still act like it. When kids are the center of the home, they're learning that they're the center of the universe. We learned early on, most kids, most families have the kids at the center and the parents revolve around. And then the kids turn 18, they go to college and then the parents look at each other and say, oh, we're married? I forgot, I thought we were coworkers. We were told very early on, God in the center, then marriage revolves around that and the kids revolve around that. The kids are along for the ride. They're not the per point. They're not the point. Kids are not the point of life. They revolve around what we're doing. We've raised selfish kids. We do not teach kids to restrain their natural selfishness. Second sense of uh, or aspect of moral formation. We don't teach basic social and ethical skills. How do you become a neighbor? What does that mean? How do you disagree with someone constructively? Ben Franklin wrote about this all the time. Uh, and I have two books. One's a kid's book and one's a, it's a short little pamphlet thing, how to change someone's mind. And in there, I, I tell a story about uh, Ben Franklin and how he finally learned to humble out and listen to people. And he says, the reason I was such an effective person in my life politically is because I learned how to listen to people and how to disagree constructively. That's what he says. There's a funny story about it. Uh, third way that we build morals in a country and in a people is you help people find a purpose in life. Here's what he says. Morally formative institutions hold up a set of ideals. They provide practical pathways towards a meaningful existence. Here's how you can dedicate your life to serving the poor or protecting the nation, or loving your neighbor. That's what he used to say. Like every, every cultural institution we had was there to help you be someone who can help others. That's the whole point. The point is you need to be a better person so that you can help other people. And I'll prove that in a little bit but with some old uh, documents. But you, you need to get better, not for your own sake, but for America's sake. And today it's all, here's how you can get better so you can get rich. Or here's how you can get better so you can be happy. But that never works because happiness is not the point. Happiness is the byproduct. Once you serve others, you will be happy. And now we've short-circuited that. Like, oh, just here's, here's what you got to do to be happy. Just do this and you're happy. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not how that works. You don't, you don't strive for happiness. You strive for virtue and virtue will make you happy. And our founding fathers knew this. I got to stop with this, this new age mumbo jumbo. It's such a lie about people being good. Knock it off already. Stop it. If this, the most important thing conservatives need to stop it with already is this belief that people are born good. This is the, the fundamental difference between not only Christians and non-Christians, but conservatives and progressives. And every conservative who says you are born good, I'm telling you, this is, this is the pivot point. Progressives think that people are born good. Conservatives know that people are born sinful. And that point right there changes everything. That is the starting point that will send you on two completely different trajectories to two completely different worlds. And our founding fathers knew, they knew, our, they knew the ancient wisdom that people are born sinful. Ben Franklin, he wrote a letter in 1782. 
to a friend. He said, men I find to be a sort of beings very badly constructed as they are generally more easily provoked than reconciled, more disposed to do mischief to each other than to make reparation, and much more easily deceived than undeceived. I love Ben Franklin so much. I love our founder. These guys, these guys were brilliant. So in the same letter, Ben Franklin, uh, he wrote this letter right after uh, a Revolutionary War battle that no one ever talks about called the Battle of St. Tees. It was a battle between the French and the British Navy in the Caribbean. So this is, we're still in the, uh, the American Revolution for another year. And yet uh, the British beat the French in a naval battle. And it was terrific. Three, uh, the f- British had 300 dead, 800 wounded. And the French had 3,000 dead or wounded, 5,000 captured. Can you believe, can you imagine that? What would it be like to be in a naval battle in 1782 in the Caribbean? Could you imagine that? So here's what Franklin is referring to here when he says this. Uh, so he tells a story to this guy. He's like, what if an angel came down and showed someone around as a guide? This is what Ben Franklin says. They arrived over the seas of Martinico in the middle of the long day of obstinate fights between the fleets of Rodney and de Grasse, it's the French and the British guy. When through the clouds of smoke, he saw the fire of the guns, the decks covered with mangled limbs and bodies dead or dying, the ships sinking, burning, or blown into the air, and the quality of pain, misery, and destruction. The crews yet alive were thus, with so much eagerness, dealing round to one another. He turned angrily to his guide and said, You blundering blockhead! You are ignorant of your business. You undertook to conduct me to earth, but you brought me into hell. No, sir, says the guide. I have made no mistake. This is really the earth, and these are men. Devils never treat one another in this cruel manner. They have more sense. And even they have more of what men call humanity. Our founders knew that men were wicked which is why they created a constitution <laughs> to handle that, to mitigate that, to mitigate ambition and corruption. That's why we have checks and balances. But then after, after that, they, they dedicated their lives to improving people's virtue. They could not have left us with more writings and warnings that freedom cannot exist without virtue. It cannot work. It will not happen. And we are witnessing it. We are witnessing their, uh, their warnings right now. Our founders were obsessed with moral education. They knew it wouldn't come natural. We think it will. We, we, don't, we don't even think morality exists. Oh, who are you to decide? That's where we're, There was a while where we thought uh, you, people would just become moral. And now we don't even think morality exists. That's how far we are, uh, we are away from the truth. But our founders were obsessed with training people to be moral. That's what the editor, Noah Webster. He said, the virtues of men are of more consequence to society than their abilities. And for this reason, the heart should be cultivated with more assiduity than the head. I don't even know what that word is. Assiduity. Close or constant or close attention to what one is doing. Assiduity. Assiduity. I've never heard that word. That's great. The heart should be cultivated with more assiduity than the head. Noah Webster wrote the dictionary, so of course he would know all the fancy words. Assiduity. 
The heart should be cultivated with more assiduity than the head. And this was true. And we did this in this country. This is why we became the greatest country in the world. If you're like, why is Slater going on and on about this? Because we used to be the greatest country in the world by far. I would like to be forever. I would like to be again. I feel like we're going down a little bit. I don't want to be going down at all. I want to be going up. So what do we got to do? Everything they did. That's why this matters. Oh, I don't, I'd rather get back to Hunter Biden. We got plenty of time for Hunter Biden. This is the most important thing if we want to be a thriving country again because this is how we became a thriving country. And we did this all the way until the 60s, pretty much. This is 1951, the National Education Association, so the public school system. Uh, they wrote that an, uh, they have an unremitting concern for moral and spiritual values, and it continues to be a top priority for education. Moral and spiritual values. Not anymore. That's not the top priority of the National Education Association. Now it's racial equity and transgender kids. You see this, uh, a, qu a quick sidebar, Your Honor. Uh, this is the, what is this? This is the National, no, no, this is the uh, American Psychological Association. They have a new guideline on uh, children's identities children's uh, sexual and gender identities uh, gender fluid gender smoothie gender hybrid gender prius gender minotaur gender by season gender by location so gen I, we, we can do this another day but gender minotaur is a child who says that they are gender one gender on the top and one gender on the bottom okay you with me on like how insane then that's like that's the school, like, school's like yes that's great we are so far away from moral formation and truth. So David Brooks, he goes through the history of education and how it was all about moral development. That was true in school and that was outside of school, the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, the Sunday School Movement, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, all of this. And church, at least, at the very least, church created in people this transcendent, View, like there, there's more than what we see. They created this transcendent love and, and created a value system that got out of you. It was more about other people serving other people. Let me quote this. Much of American moral education drew on an ethos expressed by the headmaster of the Stowe School in England who wrote in 1930 that the purpose of his institution was to turn out young men who were, quote, acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. Oh, it's so good. Acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. America's National Institute for Moral Instruction was founded in 1911. They published a children's morality code with 10 rules for right living. At the turn of the 20th century, Mount Holyoke College and all women's institution was an example of the intentionally thick moral community. When a young Frances Perkins was a student here, her Latin teacher directed, detected a certain laziness in her. She forced Perkins to spend hours conjugating Latin verbs to cultivate self-discipline. How often do we... Now if a kid doesn't want to do something, oh, okay, you don't have to. There's no such thing as zeros anymore. You can't fail anymore. It's okay. Back in the day, we're like, no, sit here, cultivate verbs. Perkins grew to appreciate this. For the first time, I became, a, I became conscious of character. The school also called upon women to follow morally ambitious paths. Do what nobody else wants to do. Go where nobody else wants to go. The school's founder implored. And Holyoke launched women into lives of service in Africa, South Asia, and the Middle East. 
So what are the results of this? When you live a life like this, and I'll wrap up here. When you, when you create a culture like this, the result is agreed upon, shared, universal truth. We were all on the same page. Oh, but diversity is our strength. We had an objective right and wrong that we all agreed on. Right and wrong was not decided in the moment. It was not decided upon personal taste. Personal taste. There was no, oh, well, who are you to say? Or, oh, you don't judge me. There was right and wrong and everyone knew it. And there was a pivot. We had an opportunity. World War II was horrific. World War II was brutal for people's psyches. It messed us up. It messed up the world. Not, not only the people who died and the destruction, like it messed up people's brains. And we had a choice. There were two ways we could have gone. We had a, pat, we did a fork in the road. We could have gone the way of Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a theologian, and he rightfully diagnosed the problem. He said this, this is all caused by human sin. And hey, everyone, we need to humble out. We need to become better people. We need to look to God. We need to recognize how sinful and broken we are and that war is the natural state of humanity and we need to do better. That was one path. Or we could go the way of Carl Rogers. He was the founder of the humanist, uh, of humanist psychology. He said the problem of World War II was caused by too much authority, too many hierarchies of power, and these power hierarchies oppressed people. So what we really need to do is we need to liberate people from these, these power structures. We need to let people be free, be free to be who they are. People are naturally good. And people need to be trusted with their own self-actualization and self-esteem and find their true selves. They're like, no, that's what's got us here in the first place. Our true selves came through. All the evils of World War I and World War II, all of that was our true selves. So see the difference? We had a path. This guy's like, hey, everyone, we got to stop acting like our true selves and start acting better. And instead, we went the other way that was like, oh, that we're so oppressed. We need to be more of who we are. No. There was this idea after World War II that you don't get virtue through communities or looking to the past or looking up or looking out. You get it by looking in. You become virtuous by connecting with your authentic true self. Oh. People are naturally good. We don't need moral formation. We need moral discovery. The Girl Scouts handbook, it changed. It used, to, it used to be all about how you serve others. Now it's how can you get in more touch with you? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? This is social emotional learning in our school's textbook. This is what Ron DeSantis kicked out of, the, out of Florida. How do you feel about being a mathematician? How does math make you feel? All this nonsense. It's all about you inside, internally. You come up with your own truth. Education used to be how to live a good life. What is the meaning of life? All this is gone. All of this is gone. So morality is gone. It's been replaced with emotivism. Whatever feels good to me right now, that's moral. Kids don't even have an understanding. They don't have the vocabulary for morality and what it could be. It's just whatever I want to do now, whatever feels good in the moment. And who are you to say otherwise? See how far we've gone? So what has that made people? It's made people sad and mean. Because what else could it make people? That's why more kids feel hopeless. 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 Persistent feelings of hopelessness? What has that ever been? I guarantee if you did a poll like that in the, in the depression, 
people wouldn't feel like that. In the depression, they wouldn't feel hopeless like we do now. Because we gave up our moral formation. Now, how do we solve this? The Bible is a good place to start for moral formation. You can read our founding fathers. They, all they wrote about was increasing virtue. For kids, William Bennett's books are really good. It's a great place to start. The Children's Book of Virtues. There's another one called The Book of Virtues. Read them constantly. We need to get our kids to start thinking that there is even such a thing as virtue and that it's something you need to work at getting. You need to go get it. It won't descend upon you and you can't find it inside of you. You need to go get virtue. Schweizer, uh, Government Accountability Institute, and his uh, podcast is The Drill Down Podcast. No one knows more about Hunter and Joe Biden than Peter Schweizer. Peter, it's wonderful to finally talk to you, sir. Thank you for being here. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Yeah, thanks for covering all this uh, so deeply and, and better than anyone. So first, let's give us the news, and then we'll branch out into some bigger, bigger issues here. So what did Comer unveil when it came to Hunter and Joe Biden? Uh, Some very interesting things yesterday. A couple things. Number one, Joe Biden, as vice president of the United States, for some reason, was operating sometimes under a pseudonym. He actually had email accounts uh, and he was emailing things to him as a matter of record. So, for example, they uncovered an email. It was an email where Joe Biden forwarded from his official vice presidential um, email, um, a notification that he was to have a conversation with uh, Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine, which he had. He then forwarded that notification to two emails. One was uh, one of his emails with a pseudonym. The other one is to Hunter Biden. And so the question is, why is he forwarding, alerting to his son, to, to nobody else, and to this email with a pseudonym, um, the fact that he had a conversation with Poroshenko. And, of course, Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine, uh, is the one who fired the prosecutor that was investigating Hunter Biden's uh, company, Burisma. Interesting. Okay, I got a bunch of questions. Um, My first thought always is, okay, I want to get benefits of the doubt, even if people don't deserve it, and just kind of talk it through. Is this a common practice to... Like to to send yourself to, for a president to have a different email address under a student. I know presidents have like Secret Service code names, right? Like Trump was mogul right. and Obama was renegade, and right. So they all have like name, but this is different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, this is absolutely different. Um, and what's also interesting about it too is yes, um, presidents do have private email accounts. Remember Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, famously had an email account that she was doing official business on. Uh, But this one uh, seemed to uh, serve a different purpose. And this is what the committee's trying to find out. But it seems that he used this pseudonym um, totally as it related to events connected to Hunter Biden's business. Ah, interesting. Um, Okay, so at least Hillary could, sorry, at least least Hillary could say, well, it was mostly about wedding stuff, (laughs) right? But you're saying, (laughs) you're saying, right, we were playing it for Chelsea's wedding, but this is like, so far we know, do we know all the emails that were sent to this? Does the the, uh, committee or just a few or, or just one? We, 
just just a few. Um, what they are doing, however, is they asked the uh, uh, National uh, Records Office. Um, this is how they uncovered it. They they were going through some of the material at the National Archives, uh, and they uncovered it. They've asked the archives for any other emails out of that official account where he forwarded to this um, private email account that that was using a pseudonym. What's interesting, too, is that this this pseudonym also shows up in the Hunter Biden laptop. So that it indicates there's communication between uh, the um, business partners of Hunter Biden and Joe Biden as it relates to this. And let's remember we also know that there is a telephone. Joe Biden, as vice president of the United States, was carrying a telephone that was being paid for by Hunter Biden's business. This, this was not Joe Biden's private phone, you know, one that he carried around when he was a senator and his vice president. This is actually a phone line that was paid for by Hunter Biden's business. So this, of course, raises all sorts of alarm bells about how they were communicating, uh, how they were coordinating uh, Joe Biden's policies uh, as they related to Hunter Biden's investments. And if you have an email with a pseudonym and if you have this telephone, that makes it pretty darn easy. Even as the vice president of the United States with lots of aides around, with uh, Secret Service around, it makes it a lot easier to communicate privately with your son um, as it relates to his business using these kinds of techniques. That smells like more than dear old dad <laughs> oh, always yeah. picking up the phone from his loving son who, you know, is just, he's just grateful that he's not doing crackhead things. Uh, so, you know, he's always going to yeah. pick up the, son, the, the phone from his boy. That's a little, that seems different than that, especially when Joe said there was an absolute wall between him and the rest of his family. Is that the quote, an absolute wall? Yeah, yeah. There was a wall. There was no communication. And look, here's the thing. I mean, <laughs> technically speaking, technically speaking, it's not legal for Hunter Biden to be paying or his Hunter Biden's business to be paying for his father's phone. Uh, if somebody is in political office, um, you know, family members can certainly buy them like a birthday gift and a Christmas gift, that kind of thing. But the ethics rules don't allow you to be paying the bills of politicians. Um, and there's certainly lots of evidence that Hunter was doing that, not just related to the phone. He was paying for repairs on his father's home up in Delaware, et cetera, while his father was vice president. So, yeah, this one um, is not your normal rudimentary, you know, uh, politician wants to communicate with his family members this is something that is much more complex and organized and hidden uh and i think it goes to the heart of the uh information relating the flow of money to the family including the flow of money to joe biden uh from these foreign entities while he's vice president and after okay we're talking with peter schweizer from government accountability institute and host of the drill down podcast all right i got a couple let's broaden it out just a little bit uh i heard the argument yeah i think jake tapper made this argument Sure, uh, sleazy, Hunter Biden stuff, sleazy, but nothing illegal. So what's the difference between lobbying, which many family members of senators and congressmen and I'm sure presidents and vice presidents have done, uh, like, the, like lobbying is a thing as potentially sleazy as one would, could describe it, but what's the difference between lobbying and bribery? And why would one argue that what the Bidens did crosses that line? Uh, great question. So um, I think as it, as it pertains to lobbying, a couple of things. Number one, if you are going to lobby any U.S. official in the United States, 
uh, you are required to, by law to register actually as a lobbyist and actually report who you're lobbying and what issues you're lobbying them on. You can't just take money from somebody and say, oh, I'm a lobbyist uh, and not disclose what you're actually doing. Hunter Biden never did that. Take it a step further. If you're actually going to lobby on behalf of a foreign entity, a foreign company, a foreign government, um, which you could certainly say uh, uh, applied in the case of Hunter Biden, you not only have to register as a lobbyist, you have to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, which says that if you have any contact with a government official trying to you know, persuade them or influence their decision on policy, and you are being paid by foreign nationals, as Hunter Biden certainly was, you are required to file under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Now, people might say, oh, big deal. It's just registration. Well, there are people like Paul Manafort who are actually in jail, and mm. I would say rightfully so, for violating FARA. And you can go to the Department of Justice website, and you can find that there's a whole host of people that have gone to jail for that. The other thing I would add is, you know, Jake Tapper doesn't quite have his law right um, when, it, when it comes to this, because the other thing he said is, well, Hunter Biden was doing some stuff and it's and it's not good, but there's no flow of money to Joe. So, you know, Joe wasn't really involved. The problem with that is um, the law says otherwise. Uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which Congress passed in 1977, says uh, bribery is not just if a politician takes money, if their family gets money uh, in exchange for changes in policy, that is the same thing as if the politician took it themselves. Uh, we signed under, ironically, the Obama-Biden administration, the International uh, Bribery Standards Agreement with a bunch of other countries that did the same thing. It said bribery is not just a politician getting paid. It is a family member getting paid. And, you know, honestly, Mike, that's the way it's usually done in the third world. It's only the really stupid politicians that take the money themselves. Sure. They usually try to run it through a family member or an assistant or some other entity. So it, it just doesn't wash to me. And I, the, the problem that I have with a lot of the coverage of this story is, like from CNN, they keep p shifting the goalposts. It used to be, well, Joe Biden had no knowledge of this. Yeah. And, uh, then it became he never talked to his son about it. And now it's basically become, well, unless you can show he directly took money, uh, there's nothing to see here. And that is not the standard and has never been the standard as it regards bribery and these kinds of policies. All right, very good. So I don't I don't live in the swamp. I don't know the swamp. I hate it. <laughs> I want nothing to do with it ever. So I don't, I don't quite understand. So, so help the rest of us understand. Uh the difference here, because I want to make sure I, I, I grasp this. Yeah. So what would be the difference between, let's say, Trent Lott's wife? So Trent Lott was the Senate majority leader uh, back in like 2000 or so. So my understanding is yeah. his wife was a lobbyist for the airlines or something. I may get this half right, yeah. wrong, but whatever, right? Yeah. So so she's a lobbyist. Yeah. Okay, sure. She registered. Okay, yeah. fine. But the I'm sure the airlines were paying her a ton of money because she's connected with the Senate majority leader. So she's getting rich and they're married. So he's getting rich from the lobby. So that seems shady, but people be like, no, 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 that's lobbying. But Hunter Biden right. is. So again, I, I may be asking the same question a different way, but what's the difference? No, no, it's, it's, and it's a good question. You're right. I mean, there was a study a couple of years ago that one third 
one out of three U.S. senators has an immediate family member who's a registered lobbyist. So okay. what you're describing <laughs> That's is, the norm. Is, is very, very common. It's not just Trent Lott. But there's a couple things. It, it, you know, number one, uh, and, and I think we should have a ban on family members being able to register and be lobbyists. I just mm-hmm. think it's wrong. But, you know, number one, uh, Trent Lott's wife, she is communicating with more people than just her husband. Um, she was an experienced lobbyist. She had gone. She was trying to meet, you know, contact other senators and other congressmen. Um, and uh, it wasn't just a question of I'm laying down at night in bed with my husband, the Senate Majority Leader, and I'm going to get what I want. That's the first difference between the two. But the second one is, again, the clandestine nature of this. And I think it's, 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 it's really, really cru- crucially important because the reason that you are supposed to register when you're lobbying uh, is so that the public knows. So, you know, somebody running against Trent Lott could say, wait a minute, his wife's lobbying for this industry. And there's some level of transparency. Uh, what Hunter Biden did was no transparency. And the other thing that seems pretty clear is that, you know, in, in regularly the way lobbying is done, if it's done legally, you register, but also you are being paid a service to try to help get legislation changed. You don't get paid based on whether you actually succeed in getting an individual politician to do something. Ah. Um, that's where the that's where the bribery comes in. And what's okay. pretty clear in you know, Hunter Biden's case is, at least according to that FBI document from the informant, it was an explicit quid pro quo. It was, if you do this for us, we will give you and your father $5 million. Um, and that is always also a bridge further than the regular lobbying that goes on in D.C. Okay, so maybe the old lobbying would be, uh, hey, lobbyist, we'll give you whatever, $5 million. Give it your best shot to get this legislation passed. <laughs> Right. right. And the person would get the money either what, way. Right. But the yeah, bribery what they, is what they would probably. Yeah. What they would probably do, Mike, is not, you know, first of all, it wouldn't be five million. I mean, even the best lobbying contracts, uh, you know, people are usually because I look at this stuff all the time. They're usually getting a million or maybe two million over the course of a year. Um, it is part of a contract. And there's a team of lobbyists that are doing it. The amounts of money that we're talking about with Hunter Biden um, are dramatically higher uh, than other lobbying arrangements that I've ever seen. Um, And and again, I think it's that transparent nature um, that is the problem and the fact that it's a it's a quid pro quo. I would add on top of that, though, Mike, also the other thing that's so unusual about the Hunter Biden case is he's not going to General Electric or General Motors and saying, hey, I'm going to lobby and try to get my dad to change. Will you hire me? He's getting hired by corrupt Ukrainian oligarchs, Chinese state-backed companies. These are very, very corrupt political cultures, which to me speaks to the fact that the reason it was done this way is because this is the way it's done in those corrupt countries. So it's Mm. it's a foreign uh, entity that's doing this, which I think makes it even more troubling than if it was General Motors or General Electric. Would would Burisma, did Barisma have a lobbyer in D.C. before Hunter Biden? Like, is that like what would a Ukrainian natural gas company have a lobbying firm in D.C.? Yes, they do that from time to time. Yes, that's correct. And so in the case of Burisma, I'm trying to remember who it was, but they had people under contract. They were paying them maybe two hundred thousand uh, dollars a year. Uh, and again, the goal was not simply to get Joe Biden to do something. It was to get Congress, uh, you know, yes. to meet. So 
And again, they would catalog and list all the members of Congress that they had met with to discuss which pieces of legislation. Interesting. And, but again, and I just want to be clear, and thank you again, Peter, for being patient with me. It, it, it wasn't, uh, if this happens, we'll give you the money. That, that seems, that's when it goes into bribery, right? Like when, you, when this occurs, then you get paid. That is correct. the bridge too far? Correct. Yeah, that's not lobbying. That's yes, correct. That's, 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 yeah, that's one of the bridges too far. Exactly. Quid pro quo. If you give me this, if you deliver this to me, you get this legislation changed. You get this prosecutor fired. We will pay you $5 million. Yes. It's not, we want you to launch an effort to get Congress to pass this bill to change our policy. Um, and, and we'll pay you $500,000 to, for you to attempt to do yes. that. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Okay. Um, what about Chuck Schumer? the other day saying, uh, Peter, the, the average American doesn't care about this. This is uh, conservatives talking to conservatives, right-wingers talking to right-wingers. Who cares? That, that no one is about the economy or whatever. And he goes on. Uh, what do you say about that brush off that this doesn't matter to the average American? Well, I think it does. I think, first of all, the polls show otherwise. I just saw, uh, I think it was a CNN poll yesterday uh, that close to 60% of the American people uh, believe that Joe Biden helped his son uh, in, in what, they, what was described by the pollsters as an illegal criminal act. Um, the Harvard-Harris poll, hardly a right-wing pollster, um, you know, run by Harvard University and Harris, which is connected to ABC News, found that 59% of independents believe that Joe Biden did something wrong in helping his son with what, again, the pollster asked was illegal criminal activity. So I think the poll numbers have shifted. And those poll numbers have shifted, by the way, not because the big major legacy network news is actually covering this story. Uh, it's because it has slowly sort of trickled out. So I think, you know, Schumer is trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. If, if, if the media won't cover this, then the American people aren't going to be interested. And ergo, the American people aren't interested, so it should just go away. And I think that loop that he's hoping exists actually does not exist. I think the polls are shifting on this. And I also think Democrats uh, are realizing that, you know, look, the, the Biden family on, on five or six levels has lied about this. When, when, when I first reported it back in 2018 about the deals in China in Ukraine, they said there were no deals. And then it became... Hunter Biden made no money off these deals. Oh, then wow. it became he, he, he never talked to his dad about it. Then it became his dad didn't know anything about it. Then it became he never met his business partners. Uh, and, and now it's become, well, you know, he, Joe Biden himself never made money or participated in the business. Each and every one of those statements has been a lie. So good. Um, and the question you always have to ask politicians is, is why do they lie if there's nothing to hide? If there's nothing that is unseemly or potentially illegal, why would they lie about it repeatedly on so many levels over the course of five or six years? And that's where I think you get to the fact that there's smoke there. They know there's fire and they're trying to cover up the fire. Yeah, it's weird. He almost Biden almost would have been better off being like, yeah, my crackhead son's a lobbyist for Burisma and they're paying him a ton of money. Can you believe those chumps? I'm not going to do what they want, but, you know. They can pay them. That's great, right? Something like that it would have been way yeah. more better, way better yeah. than, uh, than yeah. oh no, 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 nothing to see here. Um, okay, let yeah. me ask. Let me ask. I, I would ask you. This is my last question, Peter. I'll let you let you get back to work. Uh, I don't know how you investigate Chinese front organization. I don't know. I don't know what your work is. I don't know how you do that. That seems. Uh, 
I literally have no idea where you'd even start. If someone is like, hey, Slater, I want you to investigate, uh, you know, Chinese front companies that are paying Hunter Biden. I'd be like, um, I, 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 what, would I, what would I even do? So I don't even know how you do it. But uh, I would ask you about, is this impeachable and should they impeach? But let me spin it this way. Uh, yesterday, we were talking about Artic, uh, Federalist 65. And Alexander Hamilton was concerned about too much impeaching, <laughs> too much impeaching going on all the time. And his final argument for why it could be bad is, well, let me quote, he said, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision to impeach will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. So there's that, and then there's a little bit also of, um, well, geez, maybe the impeaching all the time does more harm than even the crimes that are being impeached. So something to think about as, as one asks, is this impeachable slash politically should Republicans impeach? Yeah, no, and I think that that is a very, very real uh, concern uh, that needs to be looked at. My, my view on this has always been uh, it's a question of um, getting the evidence and letting the American people decide. And so I, I am in favor of what's called an impeachment inquiry. What that means is that Congress is given more authority to investigate. Um, you know, look, the, the, the Bidens have been resistant um, on this investigation uh, which I guess you can understand. They're trying to protect their interests. But with an impeachment inquiry, you have more material, more resources that you're able to collect material, foreign bank accounts, for example, mm. other kinds of tools. I'm in favor of that. Um, but I, I really do believe in this old fashioned notion of well, let's see what they find out first before yeah. we decide whether we're going to impeach or not impeach. Let's find out what they actually find. I do believe uh, and again, very much agree with your statement in, in Federalist 65. But, you know, this is precisely the sort of thing that impeachment was designed for if mm. if the evidence exists and indicates okay. that there was bribery that took place. I mean, very that's good. actually mentioned in the articles of impeachment. And again, it involves a foreign entity. We're, we're talking about foreign countries, which is something the founders were very concerned about. Um, they were more concerned about the British crown paying off American politicians. But they took the notion of foreign financial influence buying off our leaders very, very serious. So I say, yes. let's see where the evidence leads, and then we can have the debate about whether it justifies impeachment or not. Yes, very good. What, what, what's holding up the Republicans for doing an impeachment inquiry? I think they're uh, they're not sure if they have the votes. You know, they've got a what five vote uh, margin. I think there are some uh, that are of the opinion that no, because if we do an impeachment inquiry, that means we're going to do an impeachment, and we don't want to go down that route. Mm. Um, but I think as more evidence continues to mount, um, we're going to be hearing from some of the Hunter Biden business partners in addition to Devin Archer. Um, I think they're going to have more information to share about the flow of money. Uh, there's other uh, research that we're working on that I think is going to be quite interesting. Um, and so we'll have to see. But, you know, this is why we have a representative government. You've got to get a group of people who've been elected a majority to say, yes, we need to investigate this further. I sure hope they do. Regardless of whether they do, you're going to have these congressional committees, House Oversight and Judiciary doing the very good work that they should be doing on this as well. Tremendous. Peter Schweizer, uh, president of the Government Accountability Institute, and go listen to the Drill Down podcast. Peter, thank you for your time and insight. Always great to be with you. Thanks. Very grateful. Bye. All right. No one's better. Perfect. Tremendous.
Um, I'm not. By the way, the, those last couple questions that was not. I uh, did not mean to signify that I'm against impeachment. Um, I understand the arguments for it very much. I, I and obviously the, the Democrats did it the opposite. They're like, let's impeach, and then we'll figure out why later. <laughs> let's impeach, and then we'll, uh, you know, listen to the phone call. Whatever. <laughs> right? So they do it backwards. So it's like, well, let's do it back to them. I get it. I would like to make sure we do it wisely. I see no reason for not having an impeachment inquiry. Just do the inquiry. I mean, listen, his, his term's running out. He's running out of time, right? There's not much left. So do the inquiry. Get all the truth out there. And I don't even know if you would need to impeach because we'll just vote. The American people can vote. Because impeachment doesn't really do anything. It doesn't kick you out of office. So right, that would go to the Senate. So there's not much benefit of an impeachment Right? What is really the benefit of it? If there's if there was a chance to remove him from office, well then you can have a conversation about the political uh if that's a good idea or not. But like there's no I don't really there's no huge so but at least get the impeachment inquiry so that we can have access to all of this stuff. Like all the emails to to and from Robert Peters, Robin Ware, and J.R.B. Ware. What a bunch of dopes. They went J.R.B. Rare, that where that's Joseph Robin Biden Ware. Like, they weren't even, like, trying on that one. That would, that's not creative at all. I'm American made. I got American parts. Hey, thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Very grateful. People have a great weekend. On Monday, we're going to talk to Dan Gator. And also Sorab Amari, author of the new book, Tyranny, Inc. It's coming up. See you then.